Hey there, it's Brian Seltzer. First things first, this episode of the podcast is going to sound a little bit different. I'm on the phone and I'm trying to connect with a buddy of mine who I haven't spoken with in a few years. Seltz. What's up, dude? What's up? How you doing? I'm doing terrific. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. What's going on? You know, not much. Off-season kind of winding down. Got the whole thing going on. Wife, twins, <laughs> all that good stuff. Uh, so the guy yeah, on the other end of the line is, is Dan Leibovitz. He was an assistant coach at Penn back when I worked there and did the games on the radio. Lebo grew up in Philadelphia. He went to Penn, got into coaching at Episcopal Academy in the suburbs, spent about a decade as a coach at Temple under John Chaney. He was also head coach at Hartford for four years and spent a season in the NBA as an assistant with the Charlotte Bobcats. Now, Lebo's the Associate Commissioner for Men's Basketball at the SEC. Tell me about the gig. What is it like? You enjoying it? It's been great. Um, I oversee all basketball uh, operations for the league, so for all 14 schools. It's, uh, you know, our scheduling, our TV, our officiating, all the coaching relationships. Uh, Lebo left Penn in 2012, and he and I probably have talked only once or twice since then. I remember running into him randomly at a restaurant in Northern Liberties, and maybe we chatted once on the phone. So it had been a while, but I needed to get in touch with him. In addition to being a super nice, down-to-earth dude, Lebo is also the biggest Bobby Jones fan I have ever met. When we were on bus rides with Penn, our seats were usually pretty close to each other across the aisle. I just remember him talking nonstop about how as a kid he loved Bobby Jones. What drew me to Bobby Jones was, one, you could see the respect that opponents had for him, and you could see the respect that his teammates had for him. He just was one of those players that when he made a great play, he, he lifted the whole team. I'm 34. Lebo, he's got a couple years on me, and he's old enough to remember watching Bobby play. I was born the season that Bobby retired. In just a few short days, Robert Clyde Jones will be enshrined in the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame. He'll become the 17th player in franchise history to receive the honor, one that at 67 years old, some might say, is way overdue. Jones is a four-time All-Star. He was the first player to ever be named NBA Sixth Man of the Year, which happened the same season the 76ers won the championship in 1983. He was first-team All-Defense, not just eight times, but think about this, eight years in a row. I mean, who does that? Usually, guys that get in the Hall of Fame are offensive guys. But I think it's great. He was a defensive guy who, uh, you know, took pride in that craft, got championships. He's, he's deserving. Selfless, humble, sacrifice, the ultimate teammate. That's how some of the people who know Bobby Jones best describe him. But for as much of a gentleman as Bobby was on the court, he was also fiercely competitive. Determination defined his game. He never shied away from doing everything he possibly could and practiced them in games but, you know, see that you had a chance to win and was so humble about it. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if there'll ever be another one like him, to be honest with you. 
qualities that made it that much easier for Bobby Jones to win the hearts of the Delaware Valley, especially a middle schooler like Dan Leibovitz. He was loved. He was loved because he was such a good fit for Philadelphia. He was such such a blue-collar, selfless guy. And he was a mainstay. You bring up Bobby Jones, it's always like, oh, my God, I love Bobby Jones. Everybody just had such an appreciation for him. On this episode of the broadcast, we profile the legacy of Bobby Jones through interviews with Larry Brown, Billy Cunningham, Mitch Kupchak, Bob McAdoo, and more. Plus, we hear from the man himself. I feel good about it. I mean, it's certainly a blessing, you know, my life. You know, it was certainly not expected. This is Bobby Jones, a Hall of Fame story. Leading off today's show will be Bobby Jones of the Philadelphia 76ers. Now, I know what you're thinking. Bobby gets to be on the show just because he's a teammate and personal friend of mine. Well, you're right. But Bobby also happens to be one of the most popular players in the NBA. His unselfish playing style makes him the model team player. And when it comes to defense, Bobby is simply the best there is. So until he gets his own show, I thought I'd have him on mine. Ah, yes. The dulcet, smooth, soothing tones and quippy humor of the one and only Dr. J. Who knew that back in the 1980s, Julius Serving had his own TV show. It was called Julius Irving Sports Focus, and it ran on ESPN. With Bobby Jones entering the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame, the sentiment that Irving expressed in the monologue of this particular episode of his show still rings so very true to this day. Fast forward three decades later, and the people we interviewed for this edition of the pod almost to a man said the exact same or similar things. Bobby Jones, in every way, was a team player and arguably the best defender of his era. The thing about him which made him so unique is, and I don't know if I've ever been around an athlete like him, that the amount of minutes that he would play were not a priority in any way. It was just a matter of helping the team win. And Billy Cunningham would know, now 76 years young, Billy C. coached Bobby Jones in all but the very last of Jones's eight seasons with the 76ers. During his time in Philadelphia, Jones was a two-time All-Star, playing alongside some of the top talent in the sport. He averaged nearly 12 points, five and a half rebounds, one and a half steals, and one and a half blocks per game his first six seasons with the Sixers, while shooting just about 55% from the floor. He didn't care if he scored a point, 20 points, it was insignificant. Uh, He had one common goal that he brought to the team, and that was, how can I help you win? He was the ultimate teammate. He never cared about anything but making his teammates better and the team successful. He he would do whatever was asked. That voice probably sounds familiar too, right? It's Larry Brown. He coached Allen Iverson and the 76ers to their unforgettable run to the 2001 NBA Finals. Well... It just so happened that Brown was Bobby Jones' first pro coach. When Jones graduated from the University of North Carolina in 1974, he was drafted fifth overall by the Houston Rockets. But Jones, like so many other players during that time, was also eligible for the ABA, and ultimately he chose to play for Denver. Jones and Brown shared a connection to Carolina, 
having both played there for Dean Smith. So Brown was already pretty well versed in his new prized prospect when Jones arrived in the Mile High City for what was eventually an ABA all-rookie campaign. I remember he got on me a couple of times because he always said I expected too much from him, and I always used to laugh. I said I, I would never do that unless I thought somebody was extra, extraordinary, and I always thought he was in terms of the ability to help your team win and make other players around them better. But I don't think anybody did it any better than him. The teams that I was on for those 12 years all had outstanding offensive players. So it really, I had a freedom to do what I did best and not have to worry about, well, I've got to score points for this team. Well, they didn't need my points. They needed somebody to get back and stop the fast break or, you know, somebody to get a loose ball or, or whatever. And um, so that, that kind of led me to to see, you know, that, you know, if I have an open shot, well, David Thompson has is a, is a more effective scorer than I am. So I'm going to move the ball onto him or to Julius or to whoever it might be. That made it easier for me to say, okay, as soon as the shot's up, I'm going to either, if I don't have a chance for the rebound, i got to get back or somebody's cheating out and I've got to get back and, and cover that guy. The Sixers were a dream team led by Dr. J and Moses Malone, but Philly fans knew where to look in the clutch. Bobby Jones, Bobby Jones for defense. There ain't nobody else. There ain't nobody else. There is little doubt, especially in Bobby Jones' mind, that defense was his ticket to the Hall of Fame. The chairman of the Hall, Jerry Colangelo, essentially told him as much when the announcement was officially made at this year's Final Four. He shared with the class, you know, that they decided, they made a a determination to add value and weight to defensive awards, defensive categories. And so that he, according to him, moved myself and others up, up the ladder of potential candidates for the Hall. So that's an encouragement to me to, to know that, you know, that group recognizes the importance of people who play the other half of the court, you know, a little bit harder maybe than they do the offensive end or more effectively, I guess. As a player, Bobby was several things. A winner, for sure. And yeah, he was highly dependable on the offensive end. Jones ranks 18th in NBA history in field goal shooting at 55%. And by the measure of today's popular advanced stats, he grades out among the most efficient all-around players of all time. But defense, disruptive, relentless, exhausting defense, that, without question, was Jones's calling card. Oh, he was disruptive. I mean, if he guarded you, I mean, first of all, you probably couldn't get the ball. And if you got the ball, you know, almost no matter what you did, you know, you, you could not get an athletic advantage on him. That's Mitch Kupchak. He had plenty of battles with Jones over the years, from their days as teammates at North Carolina to the NBA, where Kupchak played for the Washington Bullets and the Los Angeles Lakers. Kupchak is now the general manager of the Charlotte Hornets. The only advantage that a player can get on him was with size and strength. It was not athleticism. No matter who you are in the NBA, you could have been a 6'2 guard, you know, a 6'7 or a 6'7 small forward. Uh, and the best athlete in the NBA, you, you could not get an athletic advantage on him. You could not outrun him. You could not outquick him. You could not outjump him. The only thing you can do is if you were a stronger player, you, know, you might be able to um, overpower him, you know, with strength. But half the time he would 
position himself that if you try to do that, there's a likelihood that there'll be an offensive charge. But that was the only way that you could get an advantage on him. There, of course, are numbers you can point to that quantify just how good of a defender Bobby Jones was. But for some of the people who lived through that time with him, either as his coach, teammate, or opponent, it was all about the lasting holistic impression Bobby's defense left. Again, Billy Cunningham. He enjoyed playing it. He took the challenge. He knew who he was playing against, his strengths and weaknesses. His whole concept was not only how is he going to help stop his the player he's playing, but how can he um, help and support his teammates on the court as well. Because it's uh, at the defensive end, you must be on the same page or you have no chance. Uh, individually, you're not going to be able to stop the quality of athleticism and basketball abilities that players in the NBA have. So you need truly a team effort. Did he do anything extra in his preparation to gain an edge on the defensive side of the floor? No, I, th I think Bobby just, he did as much as everybody, but he just, uh, when he, I think the biggest thing is when he stepped on the court was his focus. Uh, he had the ability, especially coming off the bench, study the opponent's tendencies, what they were trying to do, and he was able to implement what he was going to do defensively when he stepped on the court, but it was, um, it's hard to explain how difficult it is coming off the bench and bringing some fire or an ingredient to the team to take it to another level or sustain something. And Bobby was one of those unique players because I don't know of any other player that was able to do that in the manner Bobby was coming off the bench. As great as Bobby's intangibles were, his statistical output should never be overlooked. Here's a sampling. His first season in the NBA in 1976-77 as a member of the Nuggets, he posted the best defensive rating in the league, just under 90. It was one of six times he finished in the top 20 of that category. There were also those 100 steal, 100 block seasons that Jones coveted so much. He discussed that in another interview we did with him last year. My goal was, how can I make my teammates better? because I felt like they would make me better, and so how could I make them better? And so what I drew on was two stats that I would try to do every every time. I try to Every year I try to get 100 steals and 100 block shots because I felt like those were unselfish stats. And I didn't do it every year. I, I think I played 12 years, and I might have done it five years of the 12 or six. I can't remember, but I felt like those were something that um, – you know, help the team, help us get possessions, help the other team from, uh, kept the other team from scoring. And as I look back on it, I, I think in the history of the NBA, there's only been one time where two players on the same team have done that, and that was in '83 when Julius and I both had 100 steals and 100 block shots. And I think that was part of why we were good. We, you know, we had the scoring, but we also we could play defense and we could limit teams to their possessions. We did a little extra auditing on Bobby's behalf and found that according to basketballreference.com, he in fact had not five, but six 100 steal, 100 block seasons in his career. Only six players have done it more. Dr. J and Akeem Olajuwon are tied for the all-time record of 12. How was it that Jones got to become so good on the defensive end? His evolution began with an epiphany of sorts. Most of it started when I was in high school. I was not a very... Uh, talented offensive player. I never played pickup games. I always played, you know, just uh, organized basketball. And so I, I never really created uh, an offensive 
you know, move or a style of play for myself. And I was taller than most kids, so I, I learned, you know, I blocked shots. I could be effective on the court playing defense. And then going to North Carolina, their emphasis on giving, you know, weak side help, you know, taking a charge, diving on the floor for a loose ball. Those kind of things kind of just really sort of, you know, set in my soul, basketball soul, I guess, you know, the idea of you can affect the game on the defensive end as, as much as you can on the offensive end. I think what North Carolina gave him was structure. I know he had good coaching in, in high school, but in North Carolina, Coach Smith, you know, took his competitive nature and his natural talent and uh, turned him into not only a great one-on-one defender or on-ball defender, but really a great team defender, you know, being a good teammate, blocking shots, rebounding, running the floor, everything a coach would love in a player. Four seconds left to play. Duke 71, Carolina 71. The Blue Devils will get the ball inbound. Moreau hands Fox the ball. Fox waits ball in the scatter. Goes intercepted by Jones. Here's Bobby. Cleop is good. Carolina has won the game. Carolina has beaten Duke 73-71 on the super play by Bobby Jones. Bobby Jones attended the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill from 1970 through 1974. His first year on campus was Dean Smith's 10th season at the helm, and the program was just on the verge of really taking off. Jones couldn't play as a freshman, those were the rules. But his sophomore season, the Tar Heels climbed as high as number two in the national rankings and reached the final four. It was during that season that Bobby received a master course in help defense from Dean Smith, he learned how to cheat a bit for steals and then get out on the break. His season playing for Bill Guthridge on the UNC freshman team was also important to his development. We spent so much time learning how to play defense. And, and to me, the biggest thing that I was, and most people are afraid of, is if you leave your man to go help somebody else and your man scores, well, it's on you. Coach Guthridge taught us that, you know, it's all five of us. And if, if they score on somebody else, it's still on me because I could have helped and I didn't or, or whatever. So. It was a kind of a freeing experience to be able to roam the court as an, a predator, an aggressive predator, to do the things that I could do, which is anticipate a pass or get a deflection or, you know, come over and block somebody else's shot. That's where I think it established me as far as wanting to do those things. What stood out with Bobby to me, to me, that I can remember, was his defensive play. His defensive play because of his quickness, was off the chart. Perhaps none of Bobby Jones' contemporaries go back with him as far as Hall of Famer Bob McAdoo does. Jones went to high school in Charlotte, North Carolina. McAdoo, about 100 miles northeast in Greensboro. They didn't just cross paths in the state basketball tournament. They met in the state high jump championship, too. Jones finished second, McAdoo first. He was so fast, he would overplay you, and you wouldn't even, you wouldn't even touch the ball. You know, when the ball when the ball went off the board, if he didn't get the rebound, he was out on the wings like I mean, like a track guy. He was he was gone. In order to defend like he did, you have to be a great athlete, but you have to have this mindset that you're willing to do things that maybe not everybody is willing to do. And again, it's the values that that he had and the ones that were asking him when he played for coach. Bobby Jones had the mindset to play defense all right, and he wasn't merely a willing defender. He was someone who relished that side of the floor. 
when Jones was in the prime of his career during the 70s and 80s, he had more than his fair share of formidable matchups. Back in the ABA days, future fellow 76er Julius Irvin was one of them. Another one was George McGinnis, whom the Sixers traded for Bobby. Of course, there was Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, Magic Johnson, Larry Keenan, Marcus Johnson, and another member of the 2019 Hall of Fame class, Sidney Moncrief. These were the opponents that Jones said gave him the hardest time. Our Sixers history content curator, Curtis Harris, offers some context. Bobby usually played uh, power forward, so that means that, you know, on offense, he'd be a power forward. Sometimes on defense, he might guard uh, the other team, small forward, you know, depending on the matchups. Marcus Johnson uh, with the Bucks In the Eastern Conference, you had guys like Elvin Hayes uh, with the Washington Bullets, uh, obviously Larry Bird with the Boston Celtics. So these are some, you know, top-flight uh, offensive players that he would have to guard. And really, when you get into the 80s, the small forward especially was really one of the toughest spots to guard. So even though he was a power forward, he would often slot over to guard the small forward spot. And that was really a really tough assignment uh, back in that decade. When I spoke with Bobby for the pod, I asked him something that gave him a chuckle. Could you sense when you were out there your opponent getting frustrated, you know, yes, and, and, yeah. and if so, what, what, what was what was that like for you? Were there any memorable times where you could recall that type of experience? Well, you know, I, I don't remember any specific instance, but I do remember very often, you know, I would I would bother somebody's shot. I may not block it. And for, well, first of all, I, I noticed that guys hated to have their shot blocked. So I didn't have to block their shot. I, I just had to get close enough to where they thought that I might have a chance of blocking their shot. And so I learned quickly, don't put my hand in their face. Don't uh, put my hand over their face toward the ball and and they can't tell they're looking at the basket they can't tell whether i'm close to the to the ball or not and so so many times guys would change their shot uh shoot it high in the air or shoot it quickly and it would just be a terrible shot and you know it was it was just as effective as blocking a shot and i i remember so many times also like if i was named to an all-star team i would kind of rue the next week or so because everybody i was playing against was thinking oh how did this guy get on the team i'm going to show him that i can score on him and so that was, that was always a tough time for me to, to work the game. More often than not, Bobby prevailed. And he did so with, I'm trying to think of the right word, underrated, underappreciated, unsuspecting, athleticism. In talking to former teammates and coaches about Bobby, athleticism very well could have been the most prominent quality they used to define him right behind his gentlemanly but competitive nature and defensive prowess. Once you experienced Bobby's athleticism up close, as Bob McAdoo did way back when he and Bobby competed against each other in high school in both basketball and track, you knew never to underestimate it. You gotta understand the time period that that came from, okay? Uh, Remember, integration started when me and Bobby were in school. So you didn't run into, you know, white boys that could jump like that. When you, you know, see a white guy that could jump like that, it's like, that's when you go, wow. <laughs> he didn't, you know, just wow me with his game, but he wowed me with his athleticism. He could run like a deer, and I saw that. Kirby Jones, Bobby's older brother by one and a half years, had an inside track on Bobby's athletic gifts long before anyone else. You know, that's one of the misconceptions about him, I think, is uh, I don't know how people look at him, but, you know, he wasn't that filled out, not like the guys today, and he uh, didn't look that physically strong, but he was, and 
Yeah, it's almost like people think that he lived by his wits out there and just, you know, outsmarted everybody. Or I don't think he was given enough credit for his athletic ability. I mean, this guy was a high jump champion. I mean, he could get up and down that floor with big strides, unlike anybody that tall. And he was well-disciplined. He didn't do anything after hours. That was crazy. And I tell you what, the guy's a world-class athlete, convinced of that. Kirby Jones was a fine athlete in his own right. He played Pop Warner football, baseball, was a state champion in tennis in high school, and went on to play basketball at the University of Oklahoma. The Joneses were very much a family of athletes, starting right at the top. Bobby's dad, Bob, was drafted in the Army to serve in Japan during World War II after first getting a scholarship to Indiana State. When he returned, he landed at Oklahoma and was runner-up for the NCAA title. Later in life, he was a nationally ranked tennis player on senior circuits. Then there was Bobby's mom, Hazel. She was probably the best athlete of all of us. Uh, She played in the little town, northeast Oklahoma. She was a basketball player. In the women's game, I think they had uh, three defensive players and three offensive players. She scored 58 points in one game. She did really well. She uh, got into tennis as well. And, uh, and her record was probably just the equal of my father's. I mean, she was ranked. I don't think she was ever nationally ranked. She didn't take it as seriously as he did, but she was. Uh, she dominated uh, state tournaments and regional tournaments in her age group. She, uh, she was very athletic. You know, it's easy to see you know, where Bobby got the, uh, the athletic genes from. And Bobby, his teammates, and the teams he played for reaped the rewards of those genes. Billy Cunningham. He was a, just a great athlete, and I think people tend to forget that because I think, you know, people talk so much about the athleticism of the players today. Well, I look at Bobby Jones and Julia Serving when they were playing forward together with the Sixers. I, I don't think I've ever seen two more athletic forwards on the court uh, at the same time. If you were alive back then, there's a good chance you'd still probably rank those teams to be among the best ever in the NBA even if you weren't a Philadelphia sports fan. But had it not been for an unsettling twist of fate, there's a good chance Bobby Jones might not have ever ended up a 76er at all. In the amount of time you'd need to pop open a can of soda, fill a glass, and enjoy a couple swigs that's about how long it took for bobby jones to suffer his first epileptic seizure the first seizure that i had was in college after a intramural volleyball game in the springtime i came home and had a big i had a big soda in my dorm and uh it triggered a seizure they took me to the hospital and they diagnosed my ailment as a virus of the heart called pericarditis an inflammation of the heart sac Let's cut right to the chase. This was a condition that Jones didn't just play with the rest of that season at UNC. He dealt with it his entire career. I don't know about anyone else out there, but the idea that any person, because let's start at that most basic level before contextualizing Bobby Jones as a world-class, player-hard-out professional athlete, that any person would elect to be involved in any sort of strenuous physical activity whatsoever while also trying to manage a heart problem to me is i couldn't even begin to relate 
But it is important to keep in mind, this is Bobby Jones we're talking about, an exceptional basketball player who left just about everything he had on the court. It was known that he had a heart, uh, irregular beat. You know, I remember talking to him about it. You know, he talked about how it was a soft drink that kind of triggered it. I don't know if he was making a joke or not. It was kind of like, well, I'll never drink that again. And to be honest with you, you know, that that's all I knew about it. Mitch Kupchak was two years behind Bobby Jones at UNC and kind of looked up to Bobby, who had played on the 1972 Olympic team, with a sense of awe. They ultimately formed a friendship that remains strong to this day. Kupchak is the general manager of the Charlotte Hornets, and Jones lives in the Charlotte area. Of course, we were 18 and 19 years old, and you certainly, you know, no, no restrictions, you know, on him in practice. So it's not like he ever sat out and you were wondering why he was sitting out. My two years with him, you know, he never had a setback. However, I was aware that he had this irregular heartbeat. But if no one told me that, I would never, they'd be, and of course, if he didn't talk to me about the soft drink, you'd never know. I mean, the way the guy competed, that's the last thing you think about. Pericarditis, it has a, a pretty broad range of manifestations for patients. Um, but this is Dr. Neil Choksi, Medical Director of Sports Cardiology and Fitness for Penn Medicine. And I got him on the line because I wanted to better understand exactly what pericarditis is and of equal relevance, I guess, the potential risks it poses specific to professional athletes. Probably the one that we worry about often in athletic individuals is that this inflammation, which is generally contained within the sac or in the surface around the heart, can spread into the heart tissue itself and causing a condition called myocarditis, which can lead to weakening of the heart, can cause scars in the heart, and the scar can then make uh, individuals prone to irregular heart rhythms, some of which can be quite life-threatening and unpredictable. So we also are concerned that in athletes who participate in high-intensity activity, who may have significant um, electrolyte loss during competition, and just exert themselves to supernormal levels that this will make them prone to, in worst-case scenario, sudden death during activity. When Bobby Jones got to Denver for his rookie season in the ABA, his seizures were under control. Still, there were signs that he wasn't in the clear yet. As soon as I would start the games, after about three or four minutes, my arms would tingle and my legs would get kind of weak, and I had to sit down, and my heart was racing too fast. So they gave me a medication called Indorol, which controlled my heart rate, and I took that for the four years I was at Denver. In 1976, Jones's second seizure struck. I had a seizure early in Denver, and my wife was with me. That was the first one she'd ever seen, and it was, you know, terrified her, of course. We got in the ambulance, and as we were, and I came, to, I was, I was conscious at the time. When by the time I was in the ambulance, and the thing, the first thing that we did together, we just, we just prayed, and we just, and my prayer was, Lord, thank you for this. I don't know why you've given this to me, but you, you say in your word that you, you do everything for a reason. They tried to give me a medication at the time, and I was allergic to it. So they said, well, this probably won't happen again. So we let it go. To understand Bobby Jones and his outlook on life is to understand that he's a man of deep faith. By placing his faith in a higher power, he was able to find calm amidst a turbulent, potentially frightening and scary situation. Jones grew up in the Baptist church. He always identified as a Christian. But it wasn't until he met his college sweetheart, Tess, on a blind date 
that he really began to take religion seriously, especially when he proposed to her shortly before his senior year. They've now been married for 45 years. I asked her if we could get engaged to get married, and she, she, she made the statement. She said, Bobby, I don't, think I, can, I don't know if I can marry somebody if I don't know that they're committed Christian. And it kind of embarrassed me, and I, I, I just sort of stammered, and I said, well, look, we'll talk about it later. And so I, I left, and I went home, and I started thinking, well, you know, where am I in my faith? Bobby pondered the question and acknowledged he wasn't where he needed to be. His change in mindset was immediate. He started reading more scripture and developed a new appreciation for everyday things, like trees, flowers, that sort of stuff. At first, Bobby had a hard time reconciling both being a professional athlete and religious. To him, the two lifestyles seemed opposite. It was a growth experience for me as a, as a believer to just, you know, curb my tongue and to, to, to try to edify, try to be a, a positive example to other people. Two things I learned quickly is that, uh, one, in the NBA or the ABA, if you're unaggressive, you're not going to last long. So, you know, I learned, I learned to be as aggressive as I could, uh, not, not to be dirty, but, to, you know, to be physically to do what I had to do to, to try to win a game or to get a steal or whatever it might be. And then, two, I learned that, you know, people don't want to, they don't want to hear a sermon. They want to see a sermon. And so that's what I purpose to do in my life is to try to be the encourager, be the person. Like, like when we'd have rookies, you know, they'd always send rookies down to the wrong terminal. And so the, when they told the rookie to go down that way, they'd look at me and I'd, I'd shake my head. And, you know, so they trust me. You know, they had a trust in me. And I would, you know, so I just want to be that person that people knew that I was sincere and trying to do the right thing. There's a lot of guys that talk about their faith, you know, that everybody knows about it, but he never did. Uh, he just, the way he lived his life, you know, he was a really religious kid, but he, he's just an unbelievably good person. That was Larry Brown. In 1978, Jones had to overcome his third seizure. It was also the third straight year he was an all-star for Denver. They said, you've got to take something. And so when I started taking the phenobarbital, that, that combination of the phenobarbital and the enderol for the heart really spaced me out. It just made me very ineffective on the court, and I had a very poor playoff. You know, that, that really was the, the low point of me physically, I think. More here from Larry Brown, Bobby's coach at the time. I happened to be there when he had one of his seizures, and it was it was a really difficult thing to experience. But you never heard Bobby ever complain about anything. You know, he was the same person every day. Nothing changed. I mean that in a great way. The view of the Denver front office, however, did change. 1978 would end up being Bobby Jones' fourth and final season with the Nuggets. They traded him, Ralph Simpson, and a future first-round pick to the 76ers in August of that year in exchange for George McGinnis and a future first-rounder. Denver was worried about Bobby's health. He got it, but was still surprised when he found out the Nuggets wanted to move on. I was on vacation. It was in the off early off-season. I was got a call from my agent saying, hey, they want to trade you. And the complexity of it was that I had a no-trade clause from my ABA days, and George had a no-trade clause from his ABA days. So uh, it, it drug out for about two and a half months, I think. He said it was the longest trade in history. But once Jones arrived in the city of brotherly love, something serendipitous happened. When I got to Philly, the hard thing left. 
I don't know, I think it's possibly the altitude or something. I'm not sure what it was, but I didn't have to take the, the, the heart medicine anymore. And I was able to tolerate the phenobarbital to the point where I could play, you know, maybe not as, as long as, as I wanted to, but with the same intensity that I needed. And that was all I needed to do anyway. So it, it worked out well. And ultimately, it set the stage for the defining chapter of Bobby Jones' professional playing career. With Philly down by one point, Jones snaked inside, stole the inbounds pass, and hit Clint Richardson. It was a game-breaker. Philly won by two points. For Bobby Jones, it was all in a day's work. You know, that's part of my job is to you know, play defense, try to get a steal, try to get something going, get on the break, and try to create something for somebody else. Next time you're down at the center in South Philadelphia for a 76ers game, look up, and you'll see Bobby Jones' retired number 24 hanging in the rafters where it keeps company with numbers worn by the other pass greats in franchise history, like some of Bobby's former teammates, Dr. J, Maurice Cheeks, and Moses Malone, all Hall of Famers themselves. Jones' crowning achievement as a professional basketball player will forever be his role on the 1982-83 76ers. Based on record, they were the best team in the NBA and famously lost just one of their 13 games en route to the club's second-ever title. Moses Malone was selected regular season and NBA Finals MVP. Julia Servant, the All-Star Game MVP and first-team All-NBA. And Moses, Cheeks, and Bobby Jones all got nods to the All-Defensive first team. As smooth as the Sixers might have made it look for most of that 1983 title season, the path to the Larry O'Brien Trophy was anything but linear. In fact, Going all the way back to Bobby Jones' first season with the club, there were some kinks that had to be worked out and hurdles to overcome. Here, Bobby talks about what it was like for him when he initially joined the Sixers in 1978-79. I think it was a little bit of a transitional year. Um, you know, I've always been big on chemistry, and, and I think you've got to, you have to have a, a certain time of, amount of time to develop that chemistry. And that first year was was kind of a growing experience for all of us, I think. And, you know, it didn't go as well as we would have liked, I think. But it was just getting used to everything. While that may have been true, Jones managed to stand out individually. He averaged 12.5 points, 6.5 rebounds, 2.5 assists, 1.5 steals, and just over one block per game. He was also named first-team all-defense. And even though Bobby wasn't thrilled with that 47-win 1978-79 season, he did seem confident he was in the right place, both geographically and professionally. I didn't know anything about Philadelphia. You know, I ended up living in New Jersey in West Berlin. I lived in the same neighborhood Doug Collins lived in. It was harder for my wife, I think. She had a, a, more of a Southern accent than I do, and so they'd make fun of her with her Southern accent. But uh, for me, it was, it was, really, it was really good I, because the Philly fans were, were a blue-collar, working-class group, and they appreciated the effort that I gave. And that was from the very start. You know, even if I didn't score you know, many points or whatever, they, they understood the hustle that I was providing. You know, they could relate to that, I think. And, I, and, and so I was always well-received, I felt like I was, by the fans um, during those years in Philadelphia. For as much as Philadelphia was a good fit for Bobby Jones, so too was his new head coach. Bobby and Billy Cunningham were both standouts under Dean Smith at the University of North Carolina. We went to the same universities, played for the same coach, 
so we knew quite a bit about each other before working together. I think there was just mutual respect for each other as men and what we expected from each other. And hopefully I gave what he expected from me as a coach, and I know he did that for me as, as a player. Being a fan of the Philadelphia 76ers during the late 1970s and early 1980s was an exhausting exercise in patience, let's say. Season after season, it seemed, began with promise, only to finish with frustration. There was the loss to the Los Angeles Lakers in the 1980 Finals that ended Bobby's second season with the Sixers. There was the loss to the Los Angeles Lakers in the 1980 Finals that ended Bobby's second season with the Sixers. The agonizing one-point defeat to the Boston Celtics in Game 7 of the 1981 Eastern Conference Finals. Then, in 1982, a dramatic seven-game series win over the seas to get back to the finals, only to fall again in six games to L.A. It's not that the Sixers, as talented as they were, weren't working. They just couldn't get over that last hump. I think they, they started to see well, who's who's effective, who who fits in well with others. You know, it's not to say that guys that they, they let go, you know, like Doug Collins or World Be Free or, or Daryl or Caldwell, they weren't effective. They were. But the Sixers needed an extra boost. So late in the summer of 1982, the team made a series of franchise-changing moves. First, they signed Mark Ivoroni as a free agent. Daryl Dawkins was traded to the New Jersey Nets. Then... Six weeks, think about that, six weeks before the start of the season, a seismic domino dropped. The Sixers managed to acquire Moses Malone from the Houston Rockets in exchange for Caldwell Jones and a future first-round pick. Moses was already a two-time league MVP and six-time All-Star. The deal was finalized two days before his 27th birthday. In other words, Moses Malone was in the prime of his career. And with the likes of Julius Irving, Mo Cheeks, Andrew Toney, Mark Ivoroni, and Bobby Jones by his side, he would eventually put the 76ers over the top. As far as the context of the way the team was structured, you know, a guy like Cheeks, who was who was strong on both ends of the court, you know, didn't need the ball to be successful. Same with me, um, allowed other guys like Andrew and Julius and Moses to be the focal point of what, what's happening on the offensive end. I think that group sort of knew their roles better than the previous groups of Sixers that I was playing with. And so that was, it was more of a commonality of purpose. Consensus opinion about the Sixers' 1982-83 season was that Moses was the missing link. And based on results, it's a claim that would be hard to dispute. But in a way, his individual success and the subsequent collective success of the Sixers was intrinsically linked to Bobby Jones' team-first attitude. Let's go back to the season before the title campaign. That was 1981-82, when Billy Cunningham was preparing to pitch Bobby, who had been a starter, about a new role. I felt that one of the things we were missing was somebody to bring something off the bench to inspire the team. The first day of practice, I was going to have a meeting with Bobby and explain to him that I thought that he would help us be a better team if he came off the bench. And before I opened my mouth, Bobby was telling me that he thought this would be better for the team if he came off the bench. This is how Bobby remembered the exchange. 
We caught up with him earlier this week at the 76er Training Complex in Camden, New Jersey, where the team hosted him and his family for a celebratory luncheon in his honor. I said, you know, Billy, I, whatever you're the coach, you're in charge, whatever you want to do is fine with me. Um, I, I, you know, I, I felt like I could finish games, and I wanted to be in at the end. I didn't say that to him, but I think he recognized that I had value, with, you know, for the team. So, his his explanation to me was, we don't have enough off the bench to continue what we're doing as we start the game, and you coming off the bench would help that. And I said, that's fine, no problem. So, how did Bobby do in his first season as a reserve? Well, he posted 14 and a half points per game, which would end up being the highest average ever of his Sixers career. Jones was also selected to his second straight All-Star game. He called it one of his greatest honors because it was the coaches who voted him in. Bobby and Cunningham were on the same page. I've always been a laid-back guy, and, you know, if he, he wants to sit the whole game, I'm going to sit the whole game. I, I'm, you know, I learned from Coach Smith, you know, you're, you're part of a team, and you do what, what the, the head guy wants, and he's the head guy. Fast forward to the fall of 1982, and Bobby was ready to reprise his duties off the bench for a second year in a row. Only this time with the added muscle of Moses. The Sixers started off strong that season, but behind the scenes, it did take a bit of time for everyone to get used to each other. When Christmas and New Year's rolled around, the group was rolling in the midst of a 14-game winning streak. He fit in because they had a bunch of superstars. And he was a lunch pail guy. He did the dirty work. You know, the other guys were, had the glam and everything, but Bobby was quietly doing the dirty work. You know, he guarded the other team's best forwards. Uh, he would quietly get 12 to 16 points. And you're like, after the game, you're like, what the hell? How, what? Bobby Jones? And, and he'd shoot. He'd shoot five for seven, five for eight, and stuff like that because people weren't paying you know, attention to him because they had the superstar guys on the team. After playing with Bobby Jones for a season at UNC, Bob McAdoo went on to have an MVP career. As it turned out, he was with the Lakers when they drew the Sixers in the finals in 1982 and again in 83. He was the one that was doing a lot of damage in major games, in big games and everything, championships. Eastern Conference Championship, he was, he was doing some damage, serious damage, and guarding, like I said, the best play on the other team. Indeed, the damage the Sixers did in the NBA in 1982-83 was considerable. Their 65 wins were by far the most in the league that regular season, and they ripped through the playoffs as Moses Malone famously forecasted they would. Bill Russell, where do you place the Philadelphia 76ers in the annals of the top teams in NBA history? The way they're playing now in the playoffs... They are one of the better teams to ever play the game of basketball. I have never seen a better defensive team throughout the lineup and the way they play together as this team from Philadelphia. The New York Knicks were the first victim, swept in four games. Up next, Sidney Moncrief and the Milwaukee Bucks. Nasty team. I still think the 83 team of the 76ers is one of the top five all-time teams ever. Of course, I can't really speak to the 70s, I mean the 60s and 50s, and really the 70s, but anything I've seen or played, that team was just so deep. Moncrief was one of Milwaukee's stars, a 22.5 point per game score. The Bucks dealt the Sixers their lone loss of the 1983 postseason, 
Game four of the series in Milwaukee and helped Moncrief and the Bucks avoid being swept. To this day, he speaks about that year's Sixers group with a great deal of respect. You had three seven-footers that could all play. You had an explosive point guard. You had one of the best underrated, unknown two guards in the history of basketball, Andrew Tony, that was a killer. You had obviously Dr. J and, and you had Bobby Jones and you had a great bench with Clint Richardson coming off the bench. It was just a team that was so well balanced and it was one of the greatest teams I thought ever to grace an NBA court. And Bobby fit right in because he played his role. He knew what the team needed for him to do and he took on that responsibility. If they needed for him to guard a power forward, he would do that. If they needed for him to guard a two guard like myself, he would take on that responsibility. He made a couple of big plays down the stretch in that series that changed the game for the 76ers. From there, the Sixers squared off with the Los Angeles Lakers in the finals for the third time in four years. This round, the Sixers left nothing to chance. They tamed the shorthanded Lakers in four games, winning each game by an average of 10 points. One thing about this team that they should be remembered for is they had the ability every year to come back and just keep on doing it, and keep on doing it, and darn it, they climbed the mountain. Jones scored double figures in all the last three games of the finals. The Sixers' first two series of the postseason, he posted double digits in scoring just once. Inside the visitors' locker room at the Great Western Forum, following the Sixers' Game 4 victory, he shared hugs and warm moments with coaches and fellow players. I remember the, the, after the last game, I, I don't think I've ever been as tired as I was. <laughs> I, I've never given as much effort, I don't think, for anything as, as I and the other guys on our team did to win that series. You know, I think it, it didn't really hit us until the parade. And then when we go down Broad Street, I guess it was, the number of people, it, it was just, it's its almost, you can't comprehend it, the, how many people are out there. It just, you know, every side street is full of people. I mean, it's just, it was just unbelievable to me in my mind that people were so excited and thrilled that this had happened. I really, I say the parade was almost better than the winning the championships, <laughs> you know, because I had my family there. We're all in the thing together. So that was really a special special time for me. The Sixers' triumph in 1983 came at the expense of two of Bobby's UNC teammates, Mitch Kupchak and Bob McAdoo. Both were members of the Lakers that season, but were battling injuries. Here's Kupchak. Looking back on it, you know, I'm glad he got it, but, you know, I was a part of that team at the time, and you know, I didn't want to listen to him brag, you know, how they beat us, and he's not a bragger, but if I brought it up, you know, then we start going back and forth, and he's got a memory like an elephant, he'll say something you know, to get right back at me. And I got to be on my toes. Even though I'm on my toes when we're going back and forth, you know, he's so quick and smart that I got a good chance of losing and not getting the last word in. And if I did, it wasn't as good as the last word he got in. Perhaps the last word about Jones' memorable 1982-83 season should be this. He was named sixth man of the year in the first year of the award's existence. Befitting of a guy who was more than willing to continue seeding his starting spot in order to provide an inspiring lift off the bench. It was really special, really special. My, my wife keeps telling me that they made the award because I had such a good year off the bench. I don't believe that, but I do think that it was such a great honor that I was the first one. I, I, I know there's so many others in the past, Havlicek and 
uh, Kevin McHale, who was at the same time doing the same thing. But, you know, for me, uh, individual honors really hasn't meant a lot to me. But that that was really something that I didn't expect. And it was kind of a surprise that, oh, they're, they're valuing the sixth man. And now now here's the Hall of Fame valuing defense. So it's, it's really kind of a, been a process, but it's been really neat to see how the, the things that I've tried to do as a basketball player has been um, recognized. Bobby Jones would play three more seasons. He still had two all-defensive honors left in him, but after the 1985-86 campaign, Bobby sensed his time was coming. A couple things were weighing on his mind. Two things happened near the end of my career. One was my son, who was in kindergarten, was at school one day, and I had a game that night, but he was in the spelling bee. He won the spelling bee by spelling duck. And you know, I missed that, and I, I, was, I was fairly upset about that, you know, that I'd missed my son's spelling bee performance. So I thought, how long can this go on? I'm, you know, I'm missing things with my family. And then the second thing would, would be this. As a player, I felt like for the first 11 years, I was a predator on the court, and I felt like the last year was more of the prey. You know, I, it's hard to explain, but, you know, you know, instead of, you know, the ball going away from me on def- defensive end, sometimes they'd run a play t- at me to, to rub some, me off somebody I couldn't keep up or wasn't strong enough or whatever it might be. I just noticed that I wasn't, I wasn't as effective. Those things led me to think, my contract is up at the end of this year. There's no need to move. And, and, I, and they said, hey, we'd like to have you for another year. You know, um, but I just, I just felt like it was time, physically and you know, um, family-wise. At that point, Billy Cunningham was no longer the head coach of the Sixers. He was involved with the front office of the recently created expansion team Miami Heat. And the kangaroo kid had an offer to make. I realized when Bobby retired there was still some gas in the tank. And I flew up. At this time, he had retired from the Sixers. He was working at a um, a Christian school. And I asked him if he had any interest, and he set up a scrimmage. And uh, I'm up there, and I'm watching Bobby play, and he finishes playing. And now we're talking about a lot of money is sitting there. Not the money today, but and Bobby finished, you know, for about a half an hour running up and down came over to me and explained that, you know what, I just can't play at the level I need to play at to be you know, to help the team. So that was it. After 12, at times understated, yet always significant seasons between the ABA and NBA with the Denver Nuggets and Philadelphia 76ers, Bobby Jones was ready to hang him up. For someone who never defined himself exclusively by the sport he impacted so much, Bobby was a man at peace. What should have come as no surprise, perspective prevailed. I've always been a kind of a, I don't know, quieter, home, homebound type person. And, you know, I just, I just love that. I mean, I love, you know, so, and I think that helped me as a basketball player. You know, I, as soon as the game is over, I'm home, I'm laying down, watch, wrestling with my kids or just laying around with them. And, you know, I'm not out at the club or I'm not, you know, doing something that I shouldn't be doing and are spending, expending any energy doing anything else. So, I had a focus on what my responsibility was as a basketball player, but that was my job. It always seemed like Bobby knew how to compartmentalize his worlds. He realized that even once his playing career was over, life would have plenty more to offer. I mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast, but I'll say it again to reset. 
I'm 34 years old, and I was born a few months before Bobby Jones started what would be the final season of his career. I've gone back, watched some clips of Bobby to do my best to get a better sense of what he was all about, process some visual notes to go with what I've read and heard about him. But really, that only paints part of the picture. What I wanted to find out from some of the people who we spoke with for this episode of the pod, especially the guys who either coached Bobby or played with or against him, was has there been anyone in the last generation or two of NBA players who reminds them of Bobby and what Bobby's game represented, who they could say would be a fair comp. The sentiment of the answers we got was essentially unanimous. Let's start with Bob McAdoo, who scouts for the Miami Heat. Oh, wow. I'd have to see the rosters of all the teams. because It's like you don't see guys like that. Everybody is offensive-minded. Everybody is three-point shooter. But getting up and down the court, I mean, you just you don't see guys his size doing that on a regular basis. You might see somebody, you know, go one or two times. He was like a he was like a Ferrari running out there. But you don't you don't see that. I don't, I don't know who I, I'm thinking while I'm talking. I, I can't imagine anybody that that puts six nine that puts pride in the defense. And then, you know, offensively, he's on the wing like a guard. This is Larry Brown, whose latest coaching stop was in Italy last season. He was probably one of the greatest athletes at his position, one of the greatest finishers with either hand. You can't even look in the NBA and say that guy's like Bobby Jones. There's, there's nobody like him. He's going into the Hall of Fame, so that, that in itself tells you how good he was. And here's Sidney Moncrief one of Jones' old nemeses, will also, coincidentally, be enshrined in the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame this weekend. You talk about rarity as, as it relates to basketball players. You talk about that. There would never be another Oscar. There would never be another Magic. never be another Michael, LeBron. You can be Kobe. There would never be another Bobby Jones. Just the way he played the game with his size and grace and quickness. Very unique. These days, you'll be most likely to find Bobby Jones in and around Charlotte. He lives down there on a couple acres of land, close to his children. Five of his grandkids live within a mile and a half of him. He's even built a zipline course for them in his backyard. Bobby plays some tennis. He reads, does some speaking, and has stayed connected to the game on his own terms. I still volunteer. I've helped coach a team uh, last year. I was uh, There's a homeschool boys high school team here that I help coach. They practice near my house, so I, I'll go over there and, and work with them. And I may do that again this year. I'm gonna, uh, The season hasn't started yet, but I'm going to talk with them about doing it again. So I've enjoyed my, my coaching over the years with different schools and organizations. What's the biggest lesson you try to impart to people when you coach them? Uh, is effort. It's, um, you know, box somebody out. Um, you know, you, you turn the ball over, don't look at the ref, you know, swim back. If you see a ball on the floor, you need to learn how to dive on the floor to get it. Everybody wants to shoot the three. You know, everybody wants to be Steph Curry, and, and not everybody is Steph Curry. But there are other ways you can impact the game, and I try to, I try to impress that on, on kids. Nearly three and a half decades after his career drew to an end, Bobby Jones will now have the chance to share his wisdom about basketball and life on the sport's most decorated stage, inside the Symphony Hall in Springfield, Massachusetts. If you're of the opinion that Bobby's had to wait a while to get to the Hall of Fame, don't tell that to the man himself. 
He's the type of person who, when he says he's never been concerned about getting a call from the Hall, you know he means it. I never did desire it. I, I um, you know, as we talked about separating life, you know, basketball from life. My three oldest grandkids, uh, they, they don't even play, they barely play sports. So sports has never been, you know, a thing where, you know, I will, you know, the Sixers are in town. Let's go see the Sixers. Um, I certainly watch them and I follow them as much as I can. I, I, I love the organization and, and all they've done for me. But for my descendants, that's never been that big a deal, except now I've got a four-year-old grandson. And that's all he thinks about is the Sixers. He knows the theme song. He has to play it every day on a video and as he dunks on his Nerf basketball kind of thing. But so, no, I, I, it was not, it was not, it certainly wasn't expected. Those close to Bobby, though, have long hoped to see this day come. His brother, Kirby. He's just a real success story, and I, I just uh, take my hat off to him. His greatest attribute was self-discipline. He did not go, he never went astray in any way. I mean, he was not a drinker, he was not a smoker, he was not a carouser. That was the antithesis of what he was. This guy would go back to his room, uh, watch TV. Uh, he kept himself in tip-top shape. And, if he hadn't done that, he would not have been nearly as successful. That's kind of a rarity in my book. Billy Cunningham, along with former Denver Nugget David Thompson, will present Bobby on stage for his Hall of Fame speech. I guess the key word is, when I think of Bobby Jones, I think of sacrifice. I think of where your priorities are. You know, um, Do you need to be in the limelight? Are you willing to sacrifice for your teammates? How important is winning to you? And Bobby enhanced all of those things because it absolutely did not mean a thing to him personally, what he achieved, but what the team achieved. Larry Brown. He's like family to me. You know, he's a big part of my life. When you get to coach a kid like him, and embodies everything that you were taught that's good in the game. He's never going to be out of your mind and your thoughts. I remained a huge fan of his. I stayed a huge fan of his. Watched him win a championship and watched him now have a great life and he's impacted so many people and now he's getting in the Hall of Fame and he probably doesn't even realize, you know, what an unbelievable honor it is, and, you know, as humble as he is. This from another one of Bobby's connections to Carolina, Hornets GM Mitch Kupchak, who sees Bobby a decent amount these days now that they're both based in Charlotte. I've been to his house probably, you know, seven, eight times. He invites me every two weeks. And he's always asked me to go play Frisbee golf, which I won't do. I'm not sure I know what it is. He, he loves it. He's got an extended family with grandchildren, and they're always over the house. He's always working in the yard, cutting down trees and raking and building stuff. He's as competitive as ever. He, he really has not changed one bit since... You know, I met him as a sophomore. Not one bit. He used to be envy for sure. And the irony, of course, is that that's probably the last way Bobby would want anyone to feel. But there's no denying it. Bobby Jones, in basketball and just about everything else, has lived life the proverbial right way. The celebration of his enshrinement in the Hall of Fame is certainly worth its due. Hey, we hope you enjoyed this edition of the podcast. I know it sounded a little bit different in format than what we normally do. We'd like to do more of this type of storytelling throughout the season ahead. 
a massive thank you to all the people who volunteered their time to be interviewed for the podcast, both recorded and not recorded. An equally massive thank you to all the outstanding colleagues and co-workers I am so very lucky to have who pitched in to bring this episode together. I'm going to name a few of them. Chris Frezza, Lauren Rosen, Maggie Zerby, Jeff Tinkoff, Nina Raspa, Alex Nolan, Mike Goings. You guys all rock, as do you out there who took the time to listen. I'm Brian Seltzer saying so long for now. Next edition of the podcast... I think it's about time we really dive in to what could lie ahead in 2019, 2020. Don't you? Be on the lookout in your feeds, and we'll talk to you next time. See you.